I want to speak today on a very simple topic, which is what Jesus did and what he could not do at Calvary. And I want to base what I'm saying, especially on the words of verse 31, but bringing in the context of the portion. We have here the mocking words of the chief priests when they said with the scribes, quote, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. That's what the Lord did at Calvary. He saved others. And this is what the Lord could not do at Calvary. Himself he cannot save. You know some of the statements that were made about the Lord in the Gospels were actually meant to be insults. They were spoken in derision. But yet the irony is that they contained so much truth. For example, in Luke's Gospel chapter 15, we read of the complaint of the Pharisees and the scribes about Jesus because he was having fellowship, as they saw it, with sinners. They said derisively, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. But they didn't realize just how true those words were. Because Christ receiveth sinful men, as the hymn puts it, even me with all my sin. He receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. He eateth with sinners. And so, though it was designed as an insult, as an indictment of Christ's ministry, that's a remark that contains a vital truth. The Lord Jesus Christ, and he still does today, receives sinners with open arms. That is to say, those who come to him in repentance and faith. Another statement uttered by the enemies of the Lord, which was spoken in derision, which was spoken as an insult, as something that was in mockery, is that which is recorded in these words of Mark 15.31. In fact, the Holy Spirit points out that they said this mocking. That's the word in verse 31. Likewise also the chief priests mocking, making fun, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. That was hard on the heels of the statement of verse 30, when they said, Save thyself and come down from the cross. He saved others, himself he cannot save. The language of sarcasm, the language of unbelief and derision, but yet ironically, language that contains the very heart and essence of gospel truth. He who saved others, in doing so, could not save himself. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, concerning those who would keep their own lives, that they will lose it. 
But those who lose their lives for my sake and the gospels, the same shall find it. There's a sense in which you and I cannot save ourselves. And yet, in doing that, we're being saved by him and our lives are being saved. But there's a number of important things that are suggested to me by these words. Setting forth what Jesus did. He saved others. And what Jesus could not do at Calvary, save himself. Notice first of all, that there is in this text, the testimony of a salvation realized. The testimony of a salvation realized. He saved others. That's a fact. The Lord Jesus saved others. This was As I've said, a testimony that was spoken mockingly, but yet it actually contains the genius of gospel truth. Salvation realized by Christ. He saved others. How true that was in the ministry of Christ. How true that has been through the ages of time. How true that will continue to be until the Lord comes again in power and in great glory. He's in the business of saving others. That's why he came. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Back there at the time prior to his birth, when the angel appeared to Joseph, he said in Matthew 1.21 of Mary, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, which of course is the Old Testament Joshua. It means Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah is Savior. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for because he shall save his people from their sins. He's the Savior. So even before he was born into this world, his ministry was predicted. He had come to be the Savior. Now there's a sense in which the Lord saved people in different ways. For example, in his earthly ministry, the Lord saved others from their sicknesses. We know he went about doing good. He healed people. The many miracles of healing recorded in the Bible illustrate that he saved others. He saved others' lives. He saved them from disease and pain. The very gospel that we're reading Mark, in chapter 1 and verse 34, tells us, And he healed many that were sick of divers diseases. That's all kind of maladies. All manner of diseases. And cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. We think of some of the notable examples of healing in the New Testament. Christ saved Bartimaeus from blindness. He unstopped the ears of the deaf. He loosened the tongue of the deaf and dumb child, as well as unstopping his ears. The man with the withered arm. He couldn't do anything with that arm. He was powerless. The Lord restored the limb of that man, just with the spoken word, stretch forth thy hand. He healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, John chapter 5, 
And he made the bodies of countless other people whole from their sickness. So in that sense we could say he saved others. He saved others not only from their sicknesses, but from the sepulchre, from the grave. The dead were raised to life. Now we must understand that the resurrections that Christ performed during his ministry were not their final resurrections. Because those people died again and will await the great resurrection when Christ comes. But we think of three examples, three different stages of death indeed. And three different ages of people. Jairus' daughter, the man who was the ruler of the synagogue, she was only 12 years of age. She had only just died. And when Jesus came... He raised her from the dead. Then the Lord was passing along one day, and there was a funeral taking place of a young man. We don't know how old he was, but he was a young man, the Bible says, and he was the son of a widow. Sad situation. A mother burying her grown son. But the funeral having already begun, the Lord stopped the funeral procession. And he raised the young man from death when he touched the coffin. I've always wondered if the Jewish undertaker got his money. He didn't get the job fully done. Do you know the Lord Jesus, when he, con- when he was confronted by death, always was victorious over death? Just check it out in the Gospels. No one ever died in the presence of Christ. Interesting thought that, isn't it? But at the cross, what about the thieves? Oh, well, he was dead already when the soldiers came to break the legs of the soldiers to hasten their death. Death always gives up her prey in the presence of Christ. So no one ever died in the presence of the Lord. That's an amazing fact. And there's a third example of one who had died. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, he had been dead for four days. The process of decomposition was already well underway as far as the family were concerned. And of course Mary, having kept back the ointment that would have been for his burial, she used it up on Jesus. So Lazarus would not have been embalmed. Lord, by this time he stinketh. But the Lord said, "Come, Lazarus, come forth. It has been rightly pointed out, if the Lord had not prefaced the words come forth with the word Lazarus, everybody in the graveyard would have come forth. But he said, Lazarus, just as when he calls sinners to himself, he calls you by name. Oh, the gospel call goes out in general, but there's a call that accompanies the gospel when the Holy Spirit, who one is referred to as the High Sheriff of Heaven, sets out to arrest a soul. And bring him to salvation. He speaks by name. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. That's what the Bible says. So Lazarus was raised from the dead. Many sitting at supper with the rest of them. What did the people think? We were at his funeral. We saw him buried. And here he is. Sitting at the table. Having supper with the Lord and the rest. Oh, the mighty power of Christ to raise people. 
and save others from the sepulchre. He came to save men's lives and not to destroy them, the scripture tells us. But of course, when we take these words at face value, he saved others, we must apply them to the best of all applications. He saved others from their sins. He saved others from their sins. Think of the ministry of the Lord. He comes to one who is sick of the palsy. A man who's totally paralyzed, can do nothing for himself. And he stops and he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And there and then his sins were forgiven. The same was true of the woman who was a sinner. When it says the woman who was a sinner, it means he was a particular sinner. She was well known for the type of sin that she was involved in in her life. But he said to that woman, Thy sins are forgiven. And oh, how many examples there are that we could point to in Scripture of those whom Christ saved from their sins. He's a great Savior. I was reading one commentator this week who suggested, and it is a mere suggestion, but it's worth thinking about, that one of the thieves on the cross, well, both of them would have heard this, but the one in particular may have been moved greatly by these words. He would have heard those men mockingly saying, he saved others. The commentator said, that thief may well have reasoned within his own heart because of the spirits working within him. If he saved others, he could save me. If he saved others, he could save the dying thief. And thank God, as the hymn writer put it, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm so glad about that. That's the very reason he came from heaven's glory to this sin-cursed earth was to be the saviour of others. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Oh, Jesus came to save others, and he has done just that for multitudes. There are folks in this room, I believe, and the Lord has done that for you. And you're living proof of the truth of this statement, spoken in derision. He saved others. You can say, hallelujah, I know that's true. Because he saved me. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place. And he has made me glad. He saved others. Tell me this morning, whether you're here in person or watching on this broadcast, have you been saved? Are you one of those that we could refer to under this statement, he saved others? Have you been saved? Maybe you're like the jailer in Philippi who came to those two men of God and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They gave him a very simple answer, didn't they? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Come to Christ and he'll save you. This is what Jesus did. And this is what Jesus does. He 
saved others. This is, as I've stated, the testimony of a salvation realized. But secondly, there is in these words the truth of a substitution rendered. The truth of a substitution rendered. He saved others. Himself, he could not save. And if we apply that in a gospel sense, it is so true. Now, there's a sense in which it was not true at all. The sense in which they meant it. Because they were mockingly referring to the fact that the Lord had promised that he would destroy the temple in three days and then build it. They didn't understand he was talking about the temple of his body. They thought he meant the temple that Solomon had built that was 46 years in building. So they mocked that. And here they are saying, well, he said he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He can't even save himself and come down from the cross. And they challenged him in verse 30. Save thyself and come down from the cross. You know if the Lord had not purposed to die for sinners, he could easily have done that. Didn't he say this himself? That he could have called legions of angels that would come to set him free? There's a beautiful hymn that has been written about that. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and for me. There's a sense in which this was not true. Himself he could not save. They meant he had no power to resist his Roman captors and executioners and escape from the cross. But that was not so. But there's a sense in which it was true. Here's something that the Lord could not do. He could not save others by saving himself. He had to die. We recall those words in John 17. Sorry, John chapter 10, verse 17. John chapter 10, verse 17 and verse 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He was in control of the whole matter. Don't we read those words spoken by the Lord just before he left this earth? All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That means all authority. Now many times before this, as we have pointed out in this series of messages, men had tried to take Christ and to kill him, but had failed. Every attempt of the devil to destroy Christ before he went to the cross was doomed to failure. Think of what happened when he was only a, an infant. And Herod, knowing that he was among the thousands of children there in Judea, put out a decree that all the little kids of two years and under would be killed. Because by that way he 
he figured he would kill Christ. But he was unable to do it. If you read in Luke chapter 4, you'll see a story of the Lord Jesus teaching. And if you look at it closely, he's actually teaching on the subject of election. People didn't like it then, they just still don't like it today. What did he say? Verse 25 of Luke 4, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, or Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. There were many widows. Verse 26, But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. There it is. Why did he go to that one widow and not all of them? Again, verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisius the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Again, an instance of sovereign grace. And what happened? And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. There were a bunch of Pelagians, or semi-Pelagians. They didn't like that doctrine. And it says, not only were they filled with wrath, but verse 29, they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They're ready to kill him. What happened? But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. And we have pointed out from other scriptures, John 7 verse 30, John 7 verse 44, John 8 verse 20 and verse 59, how that his hour was not yet come. The appointed hour for his death. The Lord kept him. God kept him from being destroyed before he went to the cross. Again in John chapter 10, we see... Our Lord Jesus Christ speaking about this matter in verse 31 when he said I and my father are one then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Don't you think if they could have they would have killed him that day? When they stoned people that was their method of execution. That's what they did with Stephen and they stoned him to death. And that's what they were intending to do with Jesus. They tried to stone him to death, but it says in verse 39 of John 10, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. He did not allow men to kill him before the appointed time. And even now, though he was at the cross, even at this eleventh hour or almost midnight, he could have saved himself from death. But of course in another sense he could not. Because there was, in the purpose of God, a moral necessity for the death of Christ. You think about it, if he had saved himself, hadn't gone through with the crucifixion, then the purpose of God would have been defeated. So Calvary was in God's plan. All men thought they were carrying out their plan. But it was God's plan. Listen to what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Acts chapter 2, 22. Ye men of Israel, 
Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, and miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, notice this, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Yes, he was crucified by wicked hands, but this was something that was because of the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God was in charge of the events. He's referred to as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And Peter says he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The purpose of God was that he'd go to the cross in order that he might save others. He could not save himself. But as well as this, we have to say if Christ had saved himself from the cross, then the prophecies of Scripture would have been destroyed. The Lord himself talked about the predicted end, didn't he? Look at verse number 28 of Mark 15. And the Scripture was fulfilled with Seth. And he was numbered with the transgressors. You go back to that portion that we dealt with in Mark 14. Where they came to arrest him. And the Lord said in verse 48 and 49. Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching. And ye took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Think of all the types of the Old Testament. Think of the symbols of the Old Testament. They would have become absolutely meaningless if the Lord Jesus had not died on the cross. In Luke chapter 24, after the Lord had opened up the scriptures to the two on the road to Emmaus, he met with them and with the rest of the disciples in the upper room. And he said to them, Luke 24, verse 44 to 46. These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. This is something that is predicted. This is something that is prophesied. He couldn't save himself from the death of the cross. Because if he had, the prophecies of the scripture would have been destroyed. Again, we can look at other verses. Matthew 26, 53 and 54. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? It had to be this way. He saved others himself. He could not save. There is this great truth of a substitution rendered See, if the Lord had saved himself, the pardon for sinners, just like us, would have been denied. 
The pardon for sinners would have been denied. The only way to heaven, which Christ is, would have been lost. The only door to heaven would have been closed and barred and shut against sinners. The Lord Jesus had to die at Calvary if you and I were ever to be saved. Whenever Nicodemus, that religious man, came to talk to Christ by night, I believe it did that because as a member of the Sanhedrin, he didn't want to be seen with Christ. But oh, he was so curious about the ministry of this man. Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He was interested, but he came by night, secretly. And the Lord spoke to him the gospel. He said, Moses, you remember, or speaking of Moses, he said to that man, Nicodemus, he said, do you remember what happened in the wilderness? Remember Moses made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, set it up in the midst of the camp, and all the people were being bitten by snake bites when they looked to that pole, to that snake on the pole, they were healed. Well, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus, if you look to Christ on the cross, that's how you're saved. The Son of Man must be lifted up. It's been well said that in John 3, you have two men and two musts. The first man must be born again. But in order for that to happen, the second man must be lifted up. He must need sacrifice himself. And on that cross, he did exactly that. He gave his life a ransom for many. Freely gave up himself for our redemption. He could not save himself if sinners were to be saved. Remember how he said in the garden, Father, save me from this hour. But then, how is that going to happen? How is that going to be? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. God spared not his own son, Paul told the Romans, but delivered him up for us all. And this morning, there's only one way of salvation. One way God said to get to heaven, Jesus is the only way. One way to reach those pearly mansions, Jesus is the only way. No other way. No other way to go. One way, God said, to get to heaven, Jesus is the only way. And so the Savior had to die. He had to become the substitute for his people. Bearing their sins and their shame. Taking their place. He died for them. And the Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Yes, it's true that here we have the testimony of a salvation realized and the truth of a substitution rendered. But I think by implication we also can say that there is implied here, certainly hinted at here, the tragedy of a Savior rejected. He was most certainly rejected by those 
who were crucifying him, those scribes and those Pharisees, those who were mocking him, they rejected him. That's why they said he saved others himself, he cannot save. Yet isn't it interesting that among those who mocked and reviled the Lord, right there at the cross, there were those who were converted. See, Jesus prayed on that cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I believe that the whole crucifixion party of the soldiers was converted. I believe that. The centurion and they that were with him, one of the gospel writers tells us, But Mark tells us in verse 39 of Mark 15, And when the centurion, that's the one who was in charge of the crucifixion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. That man was saved. We'll meet him in heaven. The one who put Christ on the cross. He oversaw the torture. Of course, there were others there as well. Joseph of Arimathea then came, and somebody came with him to take the body of Jesus. It was Nicodemus. That man who came by night, because he didn't want to be seen with Christ. Along with Joseph of Arimathea, who the Bible says was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So here are two men who were cowards initially. Where are they when Jesus dies? They come boldly to Pilate to beg for the body of Jesus. Not afraid to be identified with the Son of God. We're with him. We want his body. We want to graciously and tenderly bury that body. Because he's our Lord. What a wonderful Evidence of the grace of God in these men's lives. And again, there were two thieves, one crucified on either side. What does the Bible say? Look at it carefully in verse 32. These are the chief priests mocking with the scribes. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Notice that. Both of them. Both thieves. It says that. It doesn't say one one thief reviled him. It says they that were crucified with him reviled him. So right up until the last moment of the 11th hour. Someone said 11.59 on the clock. That thief is still mocking the Lord. But then the grace of God goes to work in that man's heart. There's a miracle of grace wrought. So that he says, Lord, remember me when I comest into thy kingdom. You can read about it in Luke chapter 23. And Jesus said, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There's another man at the cross that we'll meet when we're in heaven. But of course there was another thief. He never came to Christ. He never received the Savior. He did not repent of his sins, though he experienced the same things. It's a great mystery that, isn't it? You could have two men, or two women, or a man and a woman, sitting in a service where the gospel is preached, 
And the Lord deals with one and brings them to repentance and faith. And the other is unmoved. The other has no desire whatsoever for the things of God. I remember my own mother telling me once. She said, son, never mind reading about sovereign election in the Bible. She said, I can see it in families. I see it among people. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice, they'd rather starve than come. T'was the same grace that spread the feast, that sweetly forced me in. Else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. I found that written on the back of a little card that my mother had received the day she got saved. The preacher who preached that day didn't write that out because I don't think he believed it, but she believed it. Sovereign grace. It's a reality. But there's the tragedy of a saviour rejected. There are some that he would save, but they will not come to him. And yes, I believe in sovereign grace with all my heart. I also believe in human responsibility, or as one man put it, human irresponsibility. We are responsible agents. And when the Lord Jesus said to Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thy brood even as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. I don't understand everything about that, but I know this. God has a heart that beats for sinners. I never read in the Bible that He loves to damn sinners, but I do read that He loves to save them. But there's a great tragedy, and that is that there are many who will not come to Him. Friends of mine, friends of yours, Co-workers, acquaintances, maybe family members. They think what we're doing this morning is evidence that we're not quite right upstairs. That's what many of them think. And they can see that this is true. He has saved others. But they're not saved. What a sad reality that is. I remember when my dad got converted. Members of his own family that he was very close to, siblings, laughed at him and mocked his newfound religion. I know at least one, not too long before he passed, came to Christ. Hallelujah. But there are those that go on rejecting. And they hear testimonies of how Christ has saved others. But as yet, you would have to say to them that he hasn't saved you. Because you have continued to reject his offers of mercy. And I know this. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Jeremiah said to those in his day, the harvest is past, the summer is ended. And we are not saved. But a sad reality. 
that there are many trampling underfoot the blood of Christ and putting him to an open shame. They refuse and reject this glorious gospel. And what a sad thing it's going to be if they go out into eternity knowing this truth. He saved others, but I'm not saved. What an awful hell it must be for Pontius Pilate. He tried to wash his hands of the whole matter of Jesus. What shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? I'm not going to do anything with him. I'm just going to turn him over to other people. And it's not my responsibility anymore. But it was his responsibility. And he's lost today. And that one dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain of blood in his day, but the other did not. And what is the testament of the other thief? All we can conclude from Scripture is that he went out into eternity just as he lived. Lost. Maybe someone's listening to this message or will listen to it. And you think, well, I hear what you're saying. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved others, but he could never save me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I have done. You don't know the awful sins that I'm responsible for. The Lord could never save me. Listen, if Paul could say that he saved the chief of sinners, of whom I am chief, then he can save you. The Bible says that he will save to the uttermost. One old preacher that I knew back in Ulster used to say, he not only saves to the uttermost, but to the guttermost. Because he can lift the vilest and make them new creatures in Christ. The words of Romans chapter 10, and with this I will close. Beautiful words. Romans chapter 10 from verse 9. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, that blessed whosoever, that means me. If you're not the Lord's today, may the Lord bring you to himself for his own glory. Amen.